But first, we're taking a look at what is happening in some long-term care homes and care centres in this province. We know they have been very hard hit with COVID-19 and the death toll has been pretty heartbreaking, to say the least. And joining me to talk more about this is Dan Levitt, who is the Executive Director of Tabor Village. Dan, thanks so much for coming back on the program today. Happy to be here, Joel. Uh, what is happening at Tabor Village as far as uh, the number of infections and, sadly, the number of fatalities? Well, unfortunately, um, our numbers currently are that there's 67 residents who are positive and we have 55 staff members who are positive and, sadly, 16 deaths. And uh, this has been a very tough month for for Tabor and for our community. And um, when we say goodbye to um, a, a, a person who lives in care, they become part of our family. And um, every person who passes away um, before COVID, and of course now with with the number of people affected by the outbreak, it's a tragedy every single time um, we lose an older person. And um, our hearts are broken. Um, our, we're thinking and praying for the family members. And um, our staff are, have come through for us tremendously. And uh, we have a very supportive community. Um, this is a, It's been a tough month. Joel. Um, and with 55 staff members positive too, how are you dealing with filling those positions and making sure there are enough staff members to still be there for the residents? Staffing has been a, a huge challenge and uh, we have been blessed that we have uh, Fraser Health who has um, a reserves of staff that have been made available to us. Um, we try to ensure every single shift um, is filled and uh, we have been where possible overstaffing um, to, to help staff who are really um, carrying a huge burden, and um, those staff members that were first diagnosed um, in the beginning of the month, um, they've been cleared by public health to come to come back, and we have you know, every day a couple of staff members coming back. As well, we've gone to agency. Um, we don't ordinarily do that, but we've talked to a number of different agencies, and uh, they've come in. We've had people from different parts of the province even come out in and help us out so we can make sure we're hitting our staffing levels and supporting um, the people who need our care right now. Uh, so when we talk about the numbers and we look back to a few months ago where it seemed like we were getting that curve bent down and it seemed like we were getting a handle of this, to be back in this position now with so many infections, do you know how it's getting into and how it's spreading in the home? Well, I think we first have to look at the, I think everyone knows this, um, discussion around care homes. We need to reframe it and think about the community responsibility, whether it's choosing to wear a mask or, or inviting someone to your home. We know there's orders right now. We have to control the the outbreaks or the virus in the community to prevent the outbreaks in the nursing home. And I think older people are so important, we should be protecting them. How it comes into the nursing home, um, it's usually by staff members. And um, unintentionally, obviously, they have, they're asymptomatic. Um, they present at our screener and they make it through the screening. We take their temperature. Um, they're below um, 37 degrees and they make it in. And um, that, those are how, that's how the outbreaks are spreading. Um, I believe if we could do rapid testing, um, that would make a huge difference. Uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry was asked that question at the last briefing because uh, the seniors advocate, Isabel McKenzie, uh, was on this program also advocating, saying rapid testing, if it can be used at film sets and at airports, it would be a tool that would be very helpful in long-term care. Uh, Dr. Henry was saying it's not the panacea, doesn't think that, because one of her reasons was the sheer number of tests that would have to be done and the amount of testing, it would be such a huge task. But do you think there is a way or what What do you see if rapid testing was used, how would that change things? Well, Jill, I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head. If it's um, 
available in professional athletes for, for travel uh, in the movie industry. Surely our seniors are important enough to us that we would make these, this uh, tool, this extra measure of safety available. And it's not the panacea, we agree, uh, but it's better than not doing it. Um, you know, these, these workers, um, this, their calling is helping the older people in our communities or the grandparents in our community. And I think they, they deserve uh, this extra layer um, of protection for themselves. Because imagine we all have this huge amount of burden on all of us right now with the pandemic. And then they have the extra burden of caring for seniors and of working in places that have outbreaks. And they're putting, really, um, they're risking um, their lives every day when they go to work. And uh, we need to protect them. And so if this tool was available, uh, my understanding is if they presented to be asymptomatic, they would have, well, everyone would have the test, everyone who enters the building, and it takes about 15 or 30 minutes, and we get the results back, and if they're clear to come in, um, they would do their shift. I think it's something that we must do for long-term care and to protect our seniors and the healthcare workers. Because as it is now then, with you having to go to agency and, and, and filling the positions with so many staff members having the virus, have we gone back to a model then? Because it was t- talked about being so important that staff members only work at one facility. Does that take us back to a model where workers are now working in multiple locations? When, when we have the assignment from, from Fraser Health or from these agencies, they're assigned to work at our site. And um, they're, they're tested, they're screened, and... Uh, we do have um, as close to the single site order as, as you can expect. Um, we have to balance, obviously, that risk that, that, that presents from having people working at multiple sites, uh, which are very few, um, but we have to balance that with getting the work done. And uh, we are testing the employees and we are screening them. But the single site order, that made a huge difference in, to, in terms of protecting our staff. It also caused um, some health and resource challenges that we um, still have to reckon with and make sure we have enough people who want to work in seniors' care um, to support the, the extra work that needs to get done. And not to suggest that, that any death isn't heartbreaking. Uh, like you said, people become part of the community, part of a family, uh, residents and care workers, other residents, uh, those bonds are, are definitely uh, made. But th- there is also the, the thought that this is long-term care. This is a place where people go to live out their final years. Uh, do we know how the, the death rate that we're looking at with COVID-19, how it compares to if we were having this conversation talking about people becoming sick and dying during uh, any year where there's not a pandemic? Well, it's a good question. So um, beginning of the week on Monday, we had five people pass away. It's heart, heartbreaking. It's, it's unimaginable that, five, that, any, that for any building, any community would lose, would lose five people that quickly. Um, last year, in the same month, we lost the whole month, we lost five people, and that would have been a high month. Um, what is happening in, in long-term care is people are moving in because the eligibility criteria are tightened, so the length of stays are shorter. And most people who move into long-term care, they do have conditions that um, they have a life limit to, to their longevity, and uh, length of stays are uh, between one and two years. So it's not surprising um, to, know, to think that somebody in the next year who lives in long-term care might pass away, but it, it is surprising when you have this number of people passing away in outbreaks. Um, and, that, and we have to really, um, I think, uh, rethink how we, uh, we resource long-term care and what the built environment looks like so that we can support people at the end of life. All right. Uh, Dan, thank you so much. I know it's a, it's a very tough time and uh, dealing with all of this right now. Thanks so much, though, for coming on the program, and we'll talk to you again soon, I'm sure. 
Thanks, Jill. Well, this is a good news story, and it involves a little star power. You might have heard this in the news. Actors Ryan Reynolds and Blake Lively are donating half a million dollars to support programs that help people who are homeless and at-risk youth right across the country. $250,000 going to Covenant House Vancouver and another $250,000 going to Covenant House Toronto. And Ryan Reynolds has been a longtime friend to Covenant House, really supporting the programs done there. So we wanted to talk about what exactly this money will do for the organization. And Jennifer Hall joins me now, the Manager of Corporate Foundation and Community Giving with Covenant House BC. And thanks so much, Jennifer, for joining us today. Thank you, Jill. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, it's, it's a lot of money to, to come as a donation. So what was your first response when you heard that uh, Ryan Reynolds and Blake Lively were doing this? Honestly, just incredible. And I have to say not surprised in a way because they have demonstrated such kindness and compassion and for Ryan if you listen to some of the um, things that he says and cares about it's pretty clear that empathy is a north star for him so we were just so excited and grateful that he would uh, reach out to Covenant House and support the youth experiencing homelessness in this way. Uh, do you know why or, or what it is about Covenant House that uh, has has drawn his attention in that he does seem to be obviously a friend of the organization and he does seem to really want to make sure he's supporting it? Yes, he came to visit us actually, I think the first time about 10 years ago. So like you said, he's been a longtime friend to us. And I think for him and for Blake, he's expressed that he really understands the power of compassion, of empathy to transform someone's life and that the young people who come to Covenant House for help really are capable of doing amazing things. They just need some support. So I was lucky enough to actually have the chance to talk with him directly and have been in close touch with him around this. And he's so genuine and caring and he just, he knows that he is in a position to help and he really wants to do that. So we are lucky to, um, to have this opportunity. What will the money be used for? So Covenant House is actually primarily privately funded. We're funded 95% funded by the support of individuals and organizations in the, commu- in the community. So the funds that Ryan and Blake have donated will go towards an overall fundraising goal for Covenant House so that we can provide food and shelter, clothing, counseling for the young people who come to us for help. And they have chosen to use this gift as a matching donation. So that means that they are matching um, gifts coming from others in the community. So in that way, it will inspire the generosity of others in the community. Um, and yeah, just the platform that they have as public figures will really help us amplify our voice and our message in support of young people who are struggling with homelessness, not only here in our community, but as you mentioned, across the country. And, and how has it been for, uh, it seems like there's always a need for this and there's always a need for the programs that are offered by Covenant House, but how has that changed during both the pandemic and the opioid crisis? Yeah, I think like everyone, we've really had to adjust and pivot to adapt to the challenges that COVID-19 has presented. And and we've been dealing with the opioid crisis for a long time as well. So we are 
have been able to remain open throughout the pandemic and we're doing everything that we can to continue to meet the challenges and provide much needed services. Um, it's, it's been a really hard time. So this gift coming at this time, I think now more than ever, we are going to be in a better position to stay open to help the youth who need us most. And have you seen that need grow? We have seen it grow, and we've also seen that we need to provide services in a different way. So at the very beginning of the pandemic, uh, we had to close our drop-in space. But what we did is we provided services outside the building. So we were able to meet and reach perhaps a population that would have been harder to reach, who might have been hesitant to come inside. And through our street outreach team, we're continuing to stay connected with and build relationships with those youth. So we, like I said, we've been able to remain open throughout the pandemic and we're just adjusting and pivoting so that we can help reach all of the youth wherever they are as much as we can. And you've touched on this as well and and the fact that he used this donation and the matching gift and trying to encourage others to donate as well. How does that work? I know because people will be wondering as well if because of this uh, with the, the restrictions and such, is it only money that's being donated? Can they still donate items or how can how can us regular people, not celebrities, get involved in this? Right. Thanks for asking that. So the donations, the financial donations that we receive will be matched, um, not only by Ryan and Blake, but we actually were lucky enough to have some other matching donors who had come forward in the community previously. And so this is, in fact, a triple matching campaign because we have um, several donors who are giving. And now Ryan and Blake have added their gift to amplify that. As far as additional items, we are always in need of support through Gifts in Kind, and we actually have a backpack program where we we pack a new backpack full of gifts and uh, treats and things that we give out to youth experiencing homelessness um, around the holiday season. So we encourage those gifts as well. We've got lots of information on our website, um, covenanthousebc.org, that explains other ways that you can get involved as well. All right. Well, it's nice to be able to share and talk about uh, a good news story today. Uh, Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate the time. Thank you so much. And we're just so excited to have this opportunity. So thanks to Ryan and Blake as well. Well, as you've likely been hearing in the news, anyone in this province now who is caught without a mask in an indoor public place or any place where masks are now required could be handed a $230 fine. That province, that announcement coming from the province on Tuesday afternoon, that uh, as we've also been seeing staggering new numbers when it comes to COVID-19 cases and unfortunately COVID-19 related deaths. Well, joining me now to talk a bit more about these measures is Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth. Thanks so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. Uh, the The idea now of fines being handed out, who is actually going to be enforcing this? Say if somebody is on transit not wearing a mask, who gives them this ticket? Um, well, transit has the ability through their transit police to do enforcement. Uh, in uh, public spaces, indoor public spaces, uh, police would be the ones who are uh, issuing the tickets. Um, and we've seen that started uh, last night uh, in Victoria, and then, of course, that uh, absolutely outrageous and disgraceful situation that occurred in Nelson, uh, where the police were, uh, were, were able to issue a ticket. 
Um, and I think one of the points that's also important is that uh, individuals not only can get a ticket for not wearing a mask, but if they are, uh, you know, being abusive, uh, they can also uh, receive an additional uh, $230 ticket. Uh, and I know that that was uh, what occurred in uh, in Victoria last night, where someone was issued with a, an additional ticket for being abusive. All right. I'm glad you cleared that up. That was one of the questions that uh, wondering if you can get a ticket for not wearing a mask, also a ticket for the abusive or belligerent behavior. So it's uh, if you're in that scenario, it's not one ticket. You'll get multiple tickets. Exactly. And and as well as that, I mean, there is also the ability, depending on the situation, and this is one of the reasons why police are doing the, the enforcement, that, you know, individuals could potentially be uh, uh, subject to additional charges that may occur under the criminal code, for example, uh, if they are, you know, assaulting somebody. Uh, so is it in your mind then, is this something that's going to be complaint driven in that people are going to be calling the police when they see something like this or are police going to be uh, patrolling and looking for people not wearing masks? I, I, well, I think it's a, it's a combination of factors. I mean, the, the reality is, is most people in this province are following the guidelines. Most people are doing the right thing. There is, as we know, that small minority and so it will be a combination of, uh, you know, uh, uh, phoning into the police, as we've seen has happened uh, in, uh, in, in some recent examples uh, in Nelson and Victoria. But also, uh, you know, if the police are, are out doing their, their, their patrolling and their duties and they come across someone who is, who is uh, you know, not um, um, following the, uh, the, the rules or, or is engaging in, in, in behavior and, and that they notice in the store something like that, then they will be able to, uh, to enforce and as you mentioned that on transit, it would be transit police. In other jurisdictions, it would be the local police force. Uh, what about BC Ferries? Um, BC Ferries, uh, again, uh, I know the RCMP have been on board uh, some of the ferries to ensure that people are engaged uh, wearing masks. Uh, and again, uh, that can be uh, complaint, uh, uh, complaint driven. Uh, we've gone in this province uh, from a health minister and a provincial health officer who have been very reluctant to bring in this mandatory mask policy. Uh, we now have it in place uh, for all of these areas in the province. Uh, we've gone from that to, uh, I, I believe your phrase was, grow up, shut up, mask up. That's a big shift, isn't it? Um, I think what what has happened is is that there's there's a recognition and the, the request to uh, bring in these uh, these additional um, uh, guidelines under or these additional orders under the uh, uh, in, in for the Environmental Protection, um, the Emergency Protection Act um, is a recognition that you know many people uh, are trying to do the right thing, many businesses are wanting to do the right thing and have policies in place, and that the situation has evolved where it's like you know what there are people who still don't get that message, and the reality is is that um, they need to 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 know that that not only are the public serious about this. Government is serious about this. Uh, health authorities are serious about this. And people in indoor public spaces need to wear a mask. So how are you going to enforce then the collection of fines? Because if somebody is that naive or that of the mind that they don't think it applies to them and they're not wearing a mask or like the cases you mentioned in Nelson in the scenarios where people have been belligerent, people have been abusive, what's going to keep somebody in that scenario from being handed a $230 ticket, crumpling it up and throwing it on the ground? What we have found is that people are paying their fines. Um, and I can tell you that um, so far, uh, since the orders came out uh, at the uh, the end of August, uh, that there have been 25 
uh, $2,300 tickets to uh, owners and organizers of events that have been contravening the, uh, the provincial health officer's uh, orders on gatherings, for example. Um, there have been additional um, um, $2,300 uh, violation tickets for those who've contravened in terms of food and liquor. Um, and then there's been uh, additional uh, tickets to individuals who've refused to comply with direction from, from law enforcement. Um, and so my understanding is, is that the, uh, those tickets, um, a lot of those tickets have been being paid. And additional to that, there's also the Federal Quarantine Act, um, where people are required, if they come back uh, into the uh, into the into the country, uh, and to uh, to quarantine for 14 days. Uh, there's been an additional, I know, 64 tickets, uh, totaling about $70,000 in fines. Uh, have been issued uh, under that as well. Uh, but F- Pamela Feyerman, who is a, a very well-respected uh, journalist, uh, writes on medicinematters.ca, uh, has gone through this and gotten the stats from ICBC and says that only one $2,300 ticket was paid during that 30-day period where someone has uh, to to pay the ticket. Another eight tickets are being disputed. And her research shows that people aren't paying the tickets. Well, I will. I'm going to have to to, to check onto that. But what I can, I mean, people do have the ability to dispute. But what I have uh, um, been made aware of is is that, is that uh, fines are being paid uh, and will be collected. Uh, do you find it at all frustrating that that there is this small group that that doesn't want to wear a mask or or doesn't feel like the rules apply to them? Absolutely, it's incredibly frustrating. It's incredibly frustrating to the public. Um, that there are people who are, you know, so ignorant that they think that they have the ability or the right to uh, endanger, um, you know, the health of, uh, of, other, uh, of other citizens, of other people in the province, and at the same time, um, you know, make it more difficult to get uh, the, the, uh, the, the pandemic uh, under control. Uh, and it's, it's really, it's, it's extremely unfortunate and it's very frustrating but, um, you know, I also know that most people in this province are doing the right thing and will continue to do the right thing. Uh, people also, at the end of the day, want to feel safe, especially people who are following the rules and wearing their masks. Uh, when we talk about transit police, just to circle back to that one, uh, we see transit police often on the Canada line or on the SkyTrain. You don't often see transit police on buses. Uh, so what do you do in a scenario when someone's on a bus and they're not wearing a mask? Well, again, uh, you can report it to the uh, to the uh, um, uh, the transit police. You can report it to the the regular police. Um, you know, um, um, people I have noticed have used their cell phones to record incidents. For example, um, there's a number of ways in which uh, those uh, those complaints uh, can be made. Do you suggest that people use their cell phone and record that? Well. Some people do, um, you know, um, and we've seen that. But I think that the, the you know, the the wisest course, of course, is to uh, is to contact the uh, the appropriate authorities, which would be the transit police or the police. And what about people who wear masks improperly? Because unfortunately, there are people as well that put a mask on but wear it around their chin or wear it under their nose, which does absolutely nothing. Would somebody in that scenario also face a ticket? I think. One of the key one of the key elements around enforcement, of course, is education, and that's always the first step. And so, I would expect that in a in a situation like that, if they're advised, you know, look, you're supposed to be wearing the mask so it covers your nose. Most people will do the right thing. Oh, right, yeah, that's what I've got to do. 
Uh, again, it comes down to those individuals who are, you know, who are refusing to follow the orders, and then there's the ability there to 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 have enforcement uh, in place by the police. Uh, it's it's a big shift going to this model of fines for not wearing masks in the places where they're now required in public. Uh, we're still seeing, unfortunately, record-breaking numbers. It was uh, 941 numbers of COVID cases yesterday, 10 more deaths. Uh, do you anticipate more measures, more restrictions? Well, certainly what we've seen is, is the, as, as things evolve in the course of the pandemic, then orders will have to adapt uh, over time. And that, and that is what is taking place. And so, um, you know, if additional measures are required to deal with situations as they arise, then obviously, we, you know, we will have to, we'll have to implement uh, uh, those measures. Do you think we'll be able to gather for Christmas? Um, well, that depends, I think, if people do the right thing. And if people follow the provincial health office's orders and, and, and case numbers start to come down and bend things down, um, you know, I think we'd all like to see that. And it, and it comes down to, I think, everybody doing their part. And most people in this province are. It's unfortunate there's a small minority who don't. All right. Minister Farnworth, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Well, right now, we have been talking a a lot about the rules and restrictions that are in place in B.C. It is a recommendation to avoid traveling throughout the province unless it is essential. And in the community of Revelstoke, several businesses have now had to close because of COVID-19. And at least one city councillor hopes people take that information and that recommendation to heart. And Cody Yonker joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, talking about the spread of COVID-19, we now know that there's a recommendation that people not travel throughout the province unless it is an essential trip that's being made. But unfortunately, you are still seeing or some community members in Revelstoke are still seeing new cases and the disease spread. Yeah, for sure. Um, we were pretty good for most of the year. We had a few cases in early March. Um, pop-up or end of March, rather, that uh, were confirmed to be at ski lodges. But ever since then, we didn't have any positive test cases, however, or confirmed at least by the province. However, in the last about week and a half, we've had several businesses now announce that they've had staff members or they were contacted by Interior Health letting them know that they had possible customers with confirmed cases. So it's, it appears that there's a bit of an outbreak now happening. Um, so yeah, yesterday alone we had three businesses shut down. A couple of days before that, it was a couple other ones. Um, so the, the alert and concern in the community is quite high right now. And that's got to be, I mean, any businesses shut down anywhere is a bad thing. But for a community the size of Revelstoke to have that many businesses close has got to be, uh, yeah. that, that's, that's harmful. Yeah, it's yeah, it's very worrisome. Um, obviously, you know, we are a combination of a resource-based community as well as tourism, which is kind of our major sector we're moving towards now. Um, but yeah, this is kind of the the money-making season, the winter season in Revelstoke. The summer is huge as well, but going into the winter, you know, we're all kind of hoping for COVID to have calmed down so the businesses could really thrive after a really, you know, weak spring, decent summer. But now with this happening, we have businesses being forced to close down due to the COVID tests. And then we have other businesses, which I highly commend them. They're just shutting down voluntarily to try and stop the spread that's happening in Revelstoke right now for at least the next few weeks. And the ones that aren't closing down in terms of like restaurants, they're all moving to a takeout kind of thing. But it's very worrisome. You know, we want our businesses to survive. But yeah, the owners are fearful. They're worried. Um, residents of the town are worried. But 
you know, people aren't getting the message though. We still, you look out any day and, and people are flocking to town right now. It, it's, it's, um, it's unbelievable. Well, and that was uh, my next question was, do you know where it's coming from in that? Is it people that are still coming to Revelstoke from other places or uh, Revelstoke residents who are traveling and then perhaps bringing the virus back with them? Yeah, no, we don't know. There's no indication. I mean, one of the issues that I personally have had with how the COVID's being dealt with from the province is just that, you know, for instance, the local, we don't get the local stats until about a month after. So we got the October stats on, I think it was November 12th. And at that time it had still said, oh, you still only had your three, which we knew were from back at the end of March. Like the the ones confirmed by the province, but we're all going in town. We had heard lots of rumors. There was positive cases testing or showing up rather. So now we're going, well, why do we have to wait now until mid-December to really know what's been happening in November? Um, But instead, now we just have businesses going onto our local Facebook pages and being like, yep, we've got confirmations here. One of our local independent journalism uh, companies, the the Revelstoke Mountaineer, they've confirmed independently of, I think they said, six to eight cases as well. So we don't know where it's coming from, but the hope is that people will just abide by the provincial recommendations and not come. The mayor put out a statement, Tourism Revelstoke has put out statements, basically just saying, please don't come, just wait until at least December 7th kind of thing. But judging by what we're seeing in the community right now, people aren't listening. Hmm. And is that, are you fearful that that's, or concerned that that could lead to confrontations like we did see uh, kind of in the beginning of summer when people would notice a license plate or if they knew somebody wasn't uh, a local person uh, would be angry at them? Yeah, I think that's the worry across town. Um, everybody I talk to right now, I mean, I don't think people are so much worried about the confrontation yet. We're a really good community, really kind community. But I think the worry is just, you know, if we have thousands of people coming to town to come snowmobiling, to go skiing, like this weekend, the resort opens this weekend. And every year when it opens, you know, we have thousands and thousands of people here to ski. Um, the lineups are hours to get just to get on the lift. So the concern, obviously, is that if all these people are coming to the community from wherever, whether it's Alberta or BC, you know, do they even know? Are they bringing COVID, that kind of thing? Are they going to follow the rules? So I think that's the concern right now, more so than the confrontation aspect. However, I think people will only have patience for so long if they see people continuing to come here against the provincial recommendations. And when you talk about the numbers as well, we've heard this from some other areas that they would like to have more kind of real-time reporting and and a more clear picture of exactly where the cases are. Not saying that the the people themselves need to be uh, broadcast, but that they'd like to have more data when it comes to where the cases and how many. Would you do you think that would be helpful for a community like Revelstoke, where, like you said, the, the official numbers clearly don't match the numbers that people know of in the community? Therefore, maybe people don't have a real sense of what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been saying that since probably almost day one. I know the local journalism company has been saying that. A lot of people have been saying that. That's just my own personal opinion. It's not like the opinion of the city, just mine as an independent counselor and whatnot. But yeah, I think those stats are so important. You know, you take a community of our size, we've got a population of about eight to 9,000, and we're a very small community. And then, you know, you get a small outbreak. Interior Health is saying the other day that officially there's no outbreak here yet. But, you know, in a community of our size, six to eight positive cases, what we're hearing, several businesses closing down. Everybody kind of knows everybody. Everybody's in and out of each other's stores, businesses. Obviously, that's kind of changed a little bit in the last week. But 
one, two, three cases in our community can quickly blow up to be something really bad really fast. And, you know, you look at the mayors from Metro Vancouver the other day calling out the province saying, hey, let us see more information so they can try and maybe focus resources in just a small part of their large cities. Well, for me, I look at it and go, well, our small city is the size of most of the suburbs in the the lower mainland. So if we knew and the province indicated in real time what the cases are looking like, how fast they're popping up, we would be able to go to our business and say, look, this is what's happening. Focus our bylaw, focus our resources way faster than we're doing right now, in my opinion. You know, we're not going to find out till the middle of December what's happening in November. And by that time, it's too late. And we just hope that we can stop the spread. And and with a community of that size, too, what kind of health uh, resources are there as far as if these cases, if there is more spread and people need health care, is it there for them? I mean, we have a really we have a we have a terrific health system in Revelstoke. We're very fortunate to have a lot of doctors, great nursing team, that kind of thing. But our hospital is not big. It's very it's a very small hospital. I mean, I think I. I can't confirm, but I was told I heard we have either one or two ventilators max. But if you need anything major or if you have severe respiratory issues or, you know, a heart attack or that kind of thing, most people end up getting flown out to Kelowna or Kamloops. So if there was an actual true outbreak and people started going to the hospital, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if our healthcare system got overwhelmed quite quickly. Um, obviously, Interior Health is really good at moving people around and into the Okanagan. But, yeah, that's definitely a fear I've heard from a lot of people is the healthcare system, what happens, right, if it gets overrun. I mean, one prime example just alone in the last week because everybody started hearing about these rumored positive cases and then saw the businesses shutting down. The testing in town got overrun so fast uh, just this last week that when you logged on to try and register to get a test, there wasn't even dates available. It just said check back for more dates. And then Interior Health added some, like extended the times, and then that got overrun. So I went on last night just to check to see when's the closest time that I can, if I needed to, go get a test. So we're, I think we're at two days out now, but only a few days ago it was three or four days. So Interior mm-hmm. Health is doing good reacting, but it just goes to show how quickly in a small community like ours, Rumerville lit up and boom, it was just inundated and they were flooded with people trying to get tests. Uh, Are you seeing that people are wearing masks and are now following what's a provincial rule for when you're outdoors or in public space, or sorry, when you're in public spaces and that uh, are are people buying into that rule? Yeah, I think so. So far, pretty good. I haven't really heard of any issues at our local businesses um, as far as people refusing to wear masks, you know, anti-masks or whatever you want to call them. Um, I have heard a few things from different businesses about people, you know, maybe walking in at first without one, but then once they're asked, like, oh, yeah, no problem kind of thing. The, what I'm hearing from a few businesses, mostly from the grocery stores in town, is that we're still struggling with people um, congregating, you know, large groups of five or six or seven people walking in. And, again, it's a small town, you know, so everybody kind of knows everybody in town. So if you're at the grocery store, the odds are that the grocery store clerk or manager they know who you are they know if you live in revelstoke Mm -hmm. and from what i'm hearing is that more so the groups of people coming in are not residents of revelstoke you know there's six or seven of them that are here to go snowmobiling for a few days maybe they're coming to go skiing up in the rogers pass or whatnot so not too many issues yet but again the the worry and the fear is that people are going to bring COVID here they're not going to follow the rules and before you know it we're going to have a massive outbreak And that's going to be really hard to contain in the small community like ours.
All right. Well, I hope people do follow the rules and that uh, people are kept safe. Uh, Cody, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. Uh, We'll leave it there, but thanks again so much for your time. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jill. Take care. Well, this is a good news story coming out of the pandemic, and it has to do with thousands of meals that have been secured by the city of Burnaby, and they are going to help feed Burnaby seniors who might not otherwise get that. So joining me to talk about how this all came about is Pietro Calendino, a Burnaby city councillor. Thanks so much for being with us. Be with you, Jill. Uh, this is a great story. So, how did this all happen? In that the need was obviously there. How did that then lead to thousands of meals being secured for these Burnaby seniors? Oh, I think it was back in June that uh, we we have a department called the uh, um, Burnaby uh, Citizen Support Services that actually do a lot of services, not just for seniors but for young families, etc. They came with a report uh, letting us know that the pandemic, pandemic was affecting uh, especially the seniors and the several programs that they had for seniors had to be cancelled because of the COVID-19. So the request was to uh, arrange a program that would provide uh, meals to the isolated seniors and to other vulnerable people. And we, at that time, we agreed to just cut our own stipend by 10% to help this uh, uh, great initiative. Uh, So when you say cut your stipend by 10%, uh, so what does that mean as far as how many people did that? All of council did and uh, some uh, senior staff as well, I think. (laughs) And was was there any, was there much discussion as far as doing that or how did the idea even come about that uh, council and some staff would take that pay cut? Oh, from a report that came from the uh, Citizen Support Services, I think it was, and uh, I made the motion at that time, and all of council agreed, and uh, the uh, finance department deducted 10% from our stipend and donated to the uh, what we call the um, Burnaby Food First, which included the uh, food, the um, citizen support services, uh, the parks and rec, and food services. They all got together and they uh, provided the. Uh, the meals. They made the meals at uh, one of our closed kitchens, of course, at the golf courses. So they prepared, prepared them there, package them, freeze them, and then deliver them. <laughs> so it's got to be great to see that because clearly there was a need in the community even before COVID-19, but that need and, uh, and the meals that needed to be continued to, to be delivered. Uh, it must be great to see that by, making that, that, that by taking that pay cut, that was able to happen. Uh, well, it wasn't simply our pickup that um, uh, managed to get the program going. I think the uh, citizen support service applied to a grant to the United Way for a grant, and they got uh, twenty five thousand dollars. And they also went to the Canadian Medical Association, and they also got a grant from them for eighty five thousand dollars. Uh, councils in uh, pay cut contributed about thirty six thousand uh, dollars for the last six months. And they were able to provide, I think it was 13,595 frozen meals until the end of October. And, of course, going uh, to February 26th, they would be delivering, I think, 21,330 meals. But they like to go to the end of March, uh, which means they will need money for another 1,365 meals. And they're short 10,000, but, I, you know, I, I, I thought that this pandemic is not going away anytime soon. So if we uh, contribute to some more from our indemnity, 
uh, it might continue a little uh, farther than March 19. Right. And I'm guessing, too, because it was through groups that are already in existence, the United Way, the Canadian Medical Association, that would have helped in that you didn't have to start from scratch finding a way to deliver uh, these meals and figure out how to access people. That was already in place. Oh, no. No, the uh, Burnaby Citizen Support Service has a list of uh, seniors who need them. And they usually, in in normal times, they organize uh, lunches uh, at our community centers. Seniors pay them, but... um, a nominal amount, uh, and they take them to outings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They also help uh, for those people who can't go out. They do uh, shopping by phone. There are volunteer seniors that phone other isolated seniors to uh, for company and, and to ensure that they're well in their homes. So they, they provide a number of services. This was one of the ideas because they couldn't provide the lunches at the community centers. Uh, the Burnaby Citizen Support Service came up with the idea to create frozen foods and deliver it to them, frozen lunches and deliver it. I understand as well, uh, you've brought forward a motion or a, a, a notice of motion that the pay yes. cut continue. Yes, because uh, we, ju- we had another report last Monday which indicated a shortfall to be able to carry the program to the end of March. And so I said, well, it doesn't hurt us to provide that pay cut up to now, so let's just uh, continue uh, until the amount is covered for the shortfall they have. And I know there's some uh, rules in place as far as a notice of motion and, and being able to, to discuss things before there des- there's a decision. Uh, do you think yes. that it will get approved? Uh, well, I've spoken to... Uh, the majority of councillors, and, and they're in agreement, uh, but it's on a voluntary basis. If some people feel that it's not uh, appropriate for them, they don't have to have their uh, indemnity deducted or the 10% deducted. Right, right. Uh, it's on a voluntary uh, basis. Right. I mean, I, I, I will, obviously, I'm moving the motion, so I voluntarily I will continue the program. I've talked to the mayor. He will do that as well, and two or three other councillors will also do it. I, basically, I think all of them will do it. Right. And, and any idea, does it put an end date or for how long to to continue taking the pay cut? Well, this is to um, allow the program to go to the end of March. Uh, and then we'll see how the uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic will evolve. And if there will be a need, they'll propose again that we will keep, keep, keep doing it. All right. Well, it's a great initiative, and I'm sure a lot of people, a lot of the seniors who have been recipients of the meals are very appreciative of that as well. Thanks so much for joining us to talk about this today. Oh, thank you for calling and for letting people know. And Burnaby actually is the only municipality, I think, that has a service for seniors like we, like, like we have All right. in, well, in Greater Vancouver. Right. Well, maybe, maybe you've inspired uh, other councils or others uh, to do this as well. Uh, Councillor, thanks again so much for your time. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for calling me. Well, we first saw this story in the Peace Arch News and immediately thought we need to find this person and talk more to her and learn more about her story. Because, as you know, most of us are currently living through a pandemic and it's the first time. Hopefully, it's the last time. Not many of us, if any, were around when the Spanish flu was here in 1918. But there is a local woman who was. And our show contributor, John Jang, has more on her incredible life. 
Good afternoon, Jill. We are now joined by a very special guest today who just celebrated her 105th birthday last Saturday. That's correct. You heard me right. 105. Helen Watson is a remarkable person and perhaps one of the only Canadians who can now say that they have lived through two global pandemics. And her tip for you today is quite simple. Don't waste time. Just keep busy. I kept busy all the time and do the best you can. While most of us call COVID-19 an unprecedented event, truthfully, that statement isn't factually correct for Helen, who back in 1918 was just a toddler during the Spanish flu. And while she doesn't remember everything from that time, she does recall that it had a direct impact on her parents and especially her father. Um, I was three years old, and my husband, my uh, dad got death from that. And um, uh, then they moved to Kelowna, and then uh, from Kelowna, my dad uh, walked to Vernon to get, try and get, get a job. But it's the experiences she went through when she was a little bit older that helped define the woman she would eventually become. When, when, when I was about uh, 12 years old, the government took me and they put my sisters. I have uh, there's three, uh, three of us and and put the, put us in the orphanage. And then when I was 19, um, uh, I had to get out and get a job. So that was my first job at, uh, at St. Paul's Hospital. And I worked there for, for three or four years. And then I met my husband there. After meeting at the hospital in Vancouver, the two moved to Port Alberni and eventually got married. A few years later, the couple decided to move back home to the city. And uh, then we uh, we decided to to go move to Vancouver, and my husband got a husband um, a job there. And then I took up a uh, as a as a hobby. I took up oil painting and uh, I liked the art and uh, so that was my my relaxation was painting. In fact her son Larry shared with me that some of her fondest memories include going to Stanley Park with her friends and taking the day to paint the beautiful sights of Vancouver's most iconic park. She ended up selling many of her paintings in the 1980s, so there's a chance the painting at your favorite coffee shop could be a Helen Watson original. Helen is currently in a long-term care home, and though her birthday passed on Saturday, it was celebrated without her family by her side for the first time in decades, because the facility won't let anyone in. No, they can't. And I'm sorry about that. They stand outside the fence and look up, but I can't see very well. One eye is, uh, is uh, sees double and it's closed up on me. 
and my other eye is slowly going away, I think. <laughs> but as you can hear, she remains in good spirits. It's an inspiration and hopefully a reminder that COVID-19 is temporary. As Helen survived the Spanish flu and is still surviving COVID-19, we ought to remember that there is an abundance of life that we have to live and many more birthdays we have to celebrate. For now, we must think of people like Helen, who depend on the rest of society to follow the rules so that she can stay safe and healthy. The last thing I want, and the last thing I think you would want, is for Helen to have to spend her next birthday separated from her family yet again. And after all these years, she does remind you, don't waste time. They say, what's your secret? I says, my secret is just keep busy. <laughs> and that's about it. All right. And John Jang is on the line with us now. Great story. And you also were speaking with her family. Yeah, that's right, Jill. And uh, it was a, a great story. And just having a chance to speak with her it really was such a sweet conversation. Uh, you know, she she had to explain at first when we started the phone conversation that uh, she couldn't hear very well and she had just gotten new hearing aids. So it actually uh, went a lot better than I was originally hoping or, or thinking it might. And so uh, had to be careful to speak slow, but getting to hear her story and the experiences that she went through, just really incredible stuff. And she never gives up. And I think that's the attitude that we have to remember here is that, yes, this whole mask situation is tough and it can be complicated, but we're doing it for people like Helen. And speaking with her son, Larry, uh, who also shared with me uh, that anecdote about her painting and the fact that she sold many of her paintings. I'm still waiting on an email from Larry and his children uh, regarding this uh, photo book of all the paintings that she had uh, collected over the years. And so I'm very keen on getting that email quite soon. And uh, hopefully I can share it with you and uh, to our listeners on Twitter when I eventually get it but it's just a remarkable story 105 years old and still very active uh, both mentally and physically speaking 